reading of Lenin's What is to be Done, I've generated three lessons and some concluding remarks for socialists and communists, or Marxists, in the United States. If you haven't listened to lesson number one, which was on ideological struggle, and lesson number two, which was on comprehensive political exposures, I would recommend starting with those two first, because they lay some important groundwork for this third and final lesson. And having said that, let's dive in to lesson number three. Lesson number three, the victory of the masses assumes the development of a party of revolutionaries, not amateurs, and of Maoists, not other Marxists. Before saying anything about why the masses need a revolutionary party, I want to make it clear that revolutionary organizations cannot come to correct analyses, political lines, or programs without deep, real links with the masses. A mass line developed for a given situation is only made possible by great faith in, dependence upon, and relation to the people an organization is trying to organize. Any so-called revolutionary who thinks they know how to concretely defeat capitalism and colonialism here in the U.S. because they've read a bunch of revolutionary theory, but are completely removed from actual mass work, is not a revolutionary at all, but an amateur, perhaps a performer, and certainly no real servant of the people. Correct ideas and programs can only be produced through mass work, guided by a mass line. And so, I'll return to this subject in the concluding episode of the series. But for more on this subject, check out our recent episode on the mass line, the bonus episode I did on the CPP's document Mass Work, and the comprehension questions I'm about to share on Patreon this weekend that go along with the American Revolutionary Movement's book on the mass line. Having said that, let's ask why the masses would even need an organization to lead and educate them in the first place. Because before we can investigate the difference between an organization of revolutionaries and an organization of amateurs, we need to fully grasp the necessity of the people having a party of their own at all. First, the masses of internally colonized nations and the working class here in the U.S. need educated because colonialism and capitalism can't just subdue the people by force alone. Colonial and capitalist rule depends upon the miseducation of the people. And so it's important for us to name and understand that while the masses are the source from which revolutionary communists can learn correct understandings of the people's experience and thoughts, as well as the correct programs to be developed in light of both the given situation, and revolutionary science, the masses, just like ourselves, also hold wrong ideas that serve against their material interests and serve to reproduce their own and others' subordination from a historical materialist perspective. Because colonialism and capitalism systemically depend upon the miseducation of the people and the ruling white capitalist class in particular, funds and pursues the people's miseducation, it is essential that a party made up of revolutionaries overwhelmingly from the ranks of the people takes up the task of educating the masses. Because the masses are overworked, exhausted, and are often just trying to keep their lives and loved ones together. 
The potentially revolutionary proletariat in the U.S. today are mindlessly distracted with drugs and alcohol, TV shows and food, TikTok and Twitter, individual pleasure and nuclear family escapism. It is not a moral judgment against the exploited and colonized masses to say education is needed. It is a materialist judgment, a conclusion we come to through understanding how the material conditions and class positions in which the people live in structurally prevent them from spontaneously coming to correct analyses, strategies, and programs on their own. Correct interpretation of history, correct understanding of what's happening to them, their loved ones, their neighbors, and why, and a correct application of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism in their particular and specific context is only possible if the people produce a party of revolutionaries that can guide their study and help them learn from their greatest teacher, their experience. Again, I'm not saying that revolutionaries have all the answers. The Mass Line and the Maoist method of criticism and self-criticism are the Maoist solutions to the Leninist failures in preventing bureaucracy in the party and commandism between the people and their party. We'll say more about this in the end. As Maoists, we ourselves can only come to correct ideas, programs, and practice through genuine relationships with people we want to organize. But if the masses hope to combat the miseducation amongst their people that keeps their nation colonized and their class subordinate, then they have to produce a revolutionary organization equipped with the most developed stage of revolutionary science, Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, or revolutionary communism. Okay, so the masses need educated, but most importantly, mass struggle against colonialism, capitalism, and patriarchy Mass struggle for the socialist transition to communism and the decolonization of the world needs to be led. The people need leadership. They need their activity, their energy, their war, unified, guided, and directed. And this is true for the same reason we all need educated. The masses are overworked, exhausted, and distracted, and a long protracted struggle against the enemy here will be easily defeated if it's led by revisionist organizations that reject revolutionary science. Non-communists, especially, will inevitably misunderstand and mishandle the contradictions between classes, groups, forces, and ideas. They will turn allies into enemies and mistake enemies for allies. If the people are not ideologically rooted, if they are not organizationally unified, if their struggle aims for this goal one day and that goal the next, our goal of national liberation and proletarian democracy will never come to be here. The protracted people's war, which includes a national democratic front, a people's army, and a Maoist party, one might call it the Maoist trinity, is the most developed means of waging and winning a proletarian revolution. The specifics will look differently here in the imperial core than it looks in semi-colonies, but the masses' desire to be free must be guided, else we will all be endlessly defeated by our shared enemy, who controls the state, the military and police, the media, our education system, and the means of production which includes your and I's labor power. Lenin spends a good bit of time talking about the amateurishness 
of the young Marxists in Russia who, during the 1880s and 1890s, came to Marxism while at university. And to be clear, he's speaking of a movement that he himself was a part of. There is much he praises about this period of the movement. But he understood as a less developed stage of the struggle, not because the conditions weren't ripe, as many economistic and legalist Marxists were arguing at the time, but because the people's movement was being guided by amateur organizers as opposed to professional revolutionaries. During this period of the communist movement in Russia, a good 20 to 30 years prior to the successful proletarian revolution in 1917, students were studying Marxism and organizing workers against bosses and state repression. It was an incredible time of awakening for the people and for the young Marxists. Yet, when the school year was over, students would return home and the organizing would cease. It was temporary and informal, as opposed to an established effort. The workers themselves were also organized into separate circles, without any effort of unifying the circles into a larger, stronger struggle against not simply their individual bosses, but the feudal state. This left the consciousness and the proletarian character of the masses' movement at a fairly elementary level. But Lenin makes it clear that this wasn't primarily the fault of the people. Rather, it was the fault of the young circles of organizers who trailed behind the spontaneous energy and initiative of the masses. Finally, a third characteristic of the young Marxists' amateurishness was their complete lack of secrecy. Every organizer was out in the open and above ground, and despite the militancy and determination of the workers and students, their struggles were easily squelched by the Tsar and bourgeoisie with their most important weapon, the military. For example, say there are five or thirty or a hundred Maoists in a local party branch somewhere here in the U.S., if everyone is out and open about their membership in the party and their participation in the work of the party, especially in seasons where mass activity is high and there are a lot of actions and strikes and protests and street fighting happening, then all the Democratic or Republican parties have to do is send their cops to kill the handful of Maoists and the leadership of the movement is dead. Put a few bullets in a few heads. Call them terrorists and lock them up for life. If an organization does not take secrecy in the development of an underground and illegal apparatus seriously, then the work of the organization and the people's movement will remain weak, vulnerable, and unable to progress. The CPP, or the Communist Party of the Philippines, since its reconstitution after being wiped out in the 40s and 50s, is a great example for us on how to expand and consolidate a revolutionary communist organization and a protracted people's war without allowing the movement, its leadership, or its army to be wiped out with a few bombs and bullets. This is also a great lesson we can learn from the failure of the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party is the closest thing we've seen to a revolutionary party here in the U.S. since the CPUSA in the 1920s and 30s. But while the primary reason for the disillusion of the Black Panthers in the early 80s was due to their failure to correctly comprehend and resolve the internal contradictions within the party, a few jail cells and bullets put the bulk of the Panthers' leadership out quick. And if someone 
were to want to develop a new revolutionary party in the United States, hypothetically speaking, this would be a costly failure you would want to avoid. And the last thing I'll say about amateurishness is that we could understand there to be both right and left amateur errors. Rightist amateurishness would be when communism is more a hobby, a social club, a badge of honor you wear to think you're more consciously developed than others. A rightist might even talk about the necessity of revolution, but they aren't militantly studying, struggling over the correctness or incorrectness of a line, summing up practice in developing a political line, or meaningfully participating in mass work. Leftist amateurishness, on the other hand, would be when you call yourself a revolutionary and so you tweet on Twitter all day about Maoism and share your hundredth meme against revisionism, but don't actually do any real mass work. Left amateurishness might also be seen in a group's rejection of the development of a democratic front, their reduction of mass work to flyering about the revolution, or is when a gang of ten and masks show up at the state house and shout something about a protracted people's war for their Instagram or blog. But counter to both rightist and leftist amateur hour, a true Maoist party in the U.S. would be no joke. It would be carefully and exclusively filled with disciplined, tried, and tested revolutionaries, it would rigorously struggle over the correctness and incorrectness of analyses, programs, methods, and practices per our particular historical context, and would be utterly dependent upon real mass work and genuine relationship with the people the local cadre is attempting to organize. In the imperial core, a great bulk of party organization would need to remain underground, protected, and secret. And it's not that there should be two different parties. That would be a massive failure. But a democratic centralist structure is the only means to safeguard the People's Party and thus the leadership of the People's Movement in the face of constant state repression. The strength and success of a mass movement for national liberation and proletarian democracy is why a communist organization in the U.S. would need to root out all amateurishness and truly be revolutionary. And to wrap this third and final lesson up, I thought I'd take a very brief moment and invite you, the listener, to investigate for yourself the question of whether a revolutionary party would need to be one of three things. Leninist and Maoist, anti-revisionist Leninist, or Maoist. And while Lenin in What Is To Be Done doesn't argue for Leninism, and he doesn't argue for Maoism, he does tell us why ideological struggle is so important for struggles for national liberation and proletarian democracy. He explains why the masses need a party, and why the party must help place the people's struggle on a scientific base. The first stage of revolutionary Marxism was the most developed stage of revolutionary science at this time, and Lenin correctly argued that the party in Russia needed to adhere to revolutionary Marxism, not the revisionism, economism, European chauvinism, and dogmatism that dominated the Second International. And so, I am, of course, going to argue that a party in the U.S. 
today would need to be Marxist, Leninist, Maoist. But don't just listen to me. Take up these questions for yourself and study both revolutionary theory and revolutionary history. Because it seems that from my conversations with the plurality of Leninists and Maoists over the last few years, here through my own political development, a reconstituted revolutionary communist party is currently envisioned in three conflicting ways. And the first way is as a Leninist and Maoist party. This sentiment is entirely coming from Leninists, and it assumes that Leninism and Maoism are actually the same thing. Maoism is neither a rupture from nor development of Leninism. And so, can't we just all come together and reconstitute a party? And the second way is as an anti-revisionist Leninist party. Maoism may or may not be a rupture from Leninism, but this question doesn't matter to the anti-revisionist Leninist, because anti-revisionist Leninism in 2022 denies the claim that Maoism is a complete development of Leninism. There is no third stage of revolutionary science. Marxism-Leninism remains the second highest and most developed stage of revolutionary science. And then there's the third way as a Maoist party. Why must a party of revolutionary communists in the United States be Maoist as opposed to a mishmash of Leninists and Maoists? Maoist as opposed to anti-revisionist Leninist? A mishmash party of Leninists and Maoists is out of the picture from the start because of its ideological eclecticism. Eclecticism in the mishmashing of contradicting ideologies weakens the People's Party. And by weakening the People's Party, it weakens the People's Movement. Leninism and Maoism offer different and distinct ways of analyzing, understanding, and handling problems, contradictions, and mistakes. So, despite the commonalities that remain between the two, a Leninist-Maoist party would have irresolvable issues that would greatly undermine the party's ability to serve the people. And so, between the anti-revisionist Leninist party and the Maoist party, we both agree and understand why and how revolutionary Marxism is a science. But what makes Maoism a fundamental development of Leninism, which was a fundamental development of Marxism? The continuity seems clear to most people, so for brevity's sake, let's discuss its rupture. Maoism is a leap forward in the three foundational components of Marxism. It's philosophy and conception of history, dialectical and historical materialism, it's analysis of modern economy, Marxist political economy, and it's method of transitioning from capitalism and colonialism to communism, scientific socialism. Leninism advanced the first stage of Marxism in all of these three areas, and its limits were reached in the first world historical revolution, the proletarian revolution in Russia that lasted from 1917 through 1953 under Stalin's leadership. But its limitations were observed, analyzed, and responded to in the second world historical revolution, the new democratic revolution of China, spanning 1949 through 1976 under Mao's leadership. So while the Chinese communists during Mao's leadership of the party thought of themselves as Marxist-Leninists, including Mao himself, 
They were transcending the limits of Marxism-Leninism in the same way that the Bolsheviks had transcended the limits of the first stage of Marxism. Here are just a few of the many ways in which Marxism-Leninism-Maoism has developed the three components of revolutionary science beyond the limits of Marxism-Leninism. And if you're interested in reading up on this, you can find six links to three essays and three books in the show notes. Maoism has developed dialectical and historical materialism with the theory or law of contradiction and the theory of knowledge. Mao's contributions on the dialectical nature of contradictions, the relation between internal and external contradictions, principal and secondary contradictions, and principal and secondary aspects of a particular contradiction speaks for itself. Then, the Maoist theory of knowledge articulated in the essay On Practice further develops our understanding of the relation between knowledge and practice, social being and consciousness. Next, Maoism has developed Marxist political economy by means of its dialectical approach to a society's social relations, as opposed to dogmatically giving primacy to productive forces over productive relations. It's prioritization of correctly handling ideological and material contradictions during socialist consolidation and construction. And finally, it's placing politics, as opposed to economics or pragmatic and immediate concerns, in command. And finally, Maoism has developed scientific socialism with its organizational methods of criticism and self-criticism and rectification campaigns. It's formalization of the mass line for the revolutionary struggle and the relationship between the masses and their party. It's lens of the two-line struggle in the party. It's means of revolution, the protracted people's war. It's conception of new democracy for colonies and semi-colonies. It's continuation of the revolution under the new democracy. And lastly, it's tools given to us for combating revisionism and the restoration of capitalism and advancing the revolution, namely Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. Three essays, three books in the show notes to further introduce you to what I just said in a single minute. And the last thing I'll say is You've got two parties in protracted people's war right now. Two parties actually leading their people in revolution. They are both Maoist, and they are the Communist Party of the Philippines and the Communist Party of India Maoist. Not CPI Marxist, CPI Maoist. If Marxism really is about making revolution, then perhaps it means something that Maoists have been the only ones waging revolution in the 21st century in Peru, Nepal, India, and the Philippines. I hope you found this third lesson generated from my reading of Lenin's What is to be Done pertinent, particularly for our situation in the U.S., and the concluding episode of the series on our principal task and some thoughts on mass work will be out in a few days. You will find a PDF of all four episodes in essay form on Patreon soon, and that's all I got. Thanks for listening. We'll talk soon.